written is a short chapter. So let's go ahead and read the whole thing. In verse 1 it says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand in the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after this I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven last or the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with a golden with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So, here we are in Revelation chapter 15. And basically what I believe we're seeing here in chapter 15 is kind of a continue, uh, it's a continuation of the vision that we see in chapter 14. And it's important that we keep this in mind. And kind of uh, something I've been preaching on on Sunday nights, I've been uh, kind of teaching different things on how to study your Bible and how to make sure you're getting interpretations right. And there's kind of, this is a short chapter tonight. And so I kind of want to spend a little bit of time. You know, I guess teaching a little bit on this very thing too about how we get interpretation of scriptures and how we decide things. Because one of the things that I notice, you know, as a preacher and as somebody who puts messages together and as somebody too who's gotten stuff wrong before, you know, I often, when I listen to people preach, you know, good people, bad people, uh, often when they make mistakes in their study, you know, I, I always want to know how did they come up with that? I don't know if you realize this, but not everybody who preaches stuff wrong uh, does it on purpose. You know, there's a lot of pre-tribbers out there that are honest, that are trying to do right by the scriptures. That I mean, they sincerely believe they are teaching the wrong thing. They're just wrong. So I always like to ask myself, you know, what's making them read the Bible and come to this conclusion? And often it's they are they are in fact reading it wrong, and we got to make sure that we don't do this. And one of the things that people often do, and I've done it, and it's and it it's not always wrong to do this. But once again, you know, refer back to Sunday night's message on rightly dividing. Okay, for example, we love to just focus on one verse, and we often like to just focus on one word in a verse, and then make a really big deal about that. And in the Calvinist world, one of the things that they do when they like to talk about their exegesis of the Scriptures is they like to go and zoom in on a verse and then go look at the Greek and the Hebrew definitions of those words to try to find the full meaning of the word. Okay. Now, here's what is so wrong with that. We often do not find... The, you're not going to find the full meaning of the word by looking into a dictionary. You know where you find the full meaning of the word? You find it in the rest of the text. 
you have to see what all it's talking about. Because if you just focus on the Word, you're going to end up coming to the wrong conclusion many times. I saw somebody, they were you know, criticizing uh, a video where Pastor Anderson was talking about all meaning all. And, uh, and he went to some verse where it talks about loving all men, basically saying now that means we've got to love homos too. Alright? And he showed all these verses of Pastor Anderson talking about all meaning all. Well, here's the thing. When you go to, uh, for example, like John 3.16, when it's saying, for whosoever believeth in Him, you know, for God so loved the world. When you look at a lot of the verses in John where it says all, the Calvinists will often say, well, when it talks about the world, it doesn't mean like everybody in the world, but it basically just means all kinds of people in the world. Okay? Well, here's the question. How do we find out who's right in that situation? Do we go to the, he, he, the Greek dictionary? Or do we look at the surrounding text? Well, if you look at the surrounding text, if you look at other verses in the book of John, it's clear when it's talking about, you know, He is that light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. You know, when you look at the context of those verses that talk about you know salvation being for, being for the whole world, it's very clear that it is in fact talking about the whole world. There is no doubt about it. But you know, there's also verses in the Bible too where the people talk about how all men were following Jesus. You know, the Pharisees were saying that. But does that mean all people were following Jesus? I mean, all means all, right? Um, no, actually, sometimes people say words like that in exaggeration, sometimes they say things in a general sense. You know, like if I say, you know, everybody, everybody's teaching pre-trib. Does that mean everybody's teaching pre-trib? No, I'm just saying most people as a whole, that's what they're doing. I'm speaking in a general sense. And the Bible often does that in examples. And so when we just go and we want to zero in on a word, we can really mess things up sometimes. We can get the wrong idea and the wrong impression. And so I want to show some examples of that in this passage too. Because if you do that, if you just want to go all ape over one word and looking like you're all hardcore, that I believe every word of the Bible because you just want to zero in on what this one word means, well then, you're actually going to get this passage wrong. You're going to get a lot of things wrong in this passage. And that is not it's not always best to do that. You want to get your commentary on what that word means, not from a dictionary, but on what the rest of the passage says. Okay? We use all of the words of the Bible, not just the ones we like. So look, I want you so I want you to notice this, because people get confused when you get this passage right here. So it says in verse one, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. So notice how it says here that these angels have the seven last plagues. So, let me ask you this. What does this do with what we teach all right, about how the first six seals, the seven seals, are basically natural events? And then we have the seven trumpet judgments that we say correspond with these seven vials. All right? That's what I've been pushing this whole time. So if we all of a sudden we go here and we have these seven vials with the seven last plagues, well then what were the plagues that were before it? Wouldn't that make it the trumpets? I mean, it says last, right? So if there's a last, that means there's got to be a first, right? So therefore, these things do not overlap, right? These things do not go along. 
Is that what we should do? Should we focus on the word last that's said right there? Or should we focus at all the words that are around it? Okay? That's what we need to do. Okay? Because so, before I kind of explain what this last is all about, you know, let me just point out a few other things too. Okay? So, first off, interestingly enough, these angels that have the seven last plagues, that in them is filled up the wrath of God. Well, what does that mean? It means God's wrath has not been poured out yet, doesn't it? So, that's tough for the pre-tribbers who always want to hang on. We have not been appointed under wrath. That's a huge problem for them. Right here we see these seven vials in them contain the wrath of God. And what did we see in chapter 14? We saw the rapture in chapter 14, didn't we? And then, sure enough, in 15, we have God's wrath being poured out because the pre-tribbers are right. We've not been appointed under wrath, but they are wrong in saying that the tribulation is the wrath of God. They have no scriptural basis for that at all. Absolutely none. So, you know, we teach the rapture takes place in chapter 14, right before the wrath is poured out. Verse 2 says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and then that had gotten victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So, I'll, let me show you another massive pre-trib contradiction. Okay? This is why pre-tribbers, they can't give you their outline or a good timeline of the book of Revelation because they don't know where anything's at. They're constantly jumping around. It's all over the place. So right here, this group of people that got victory over the image and over his mark, would we not all agree that most of these people that it's referring to that got victory over the beast were killed? I think we definitely have to say that yes, most of these people were killed we see that the Antichrist is going to make war with the saints and he's going to prevail over them. But the Bible says that we overcome him. Why? Because they love not their lives even unto the death. So the truth is, even though the Antichrist wins physically, in the, in the big picture, we win because we do the right thing spiritually. We don't take the mark. So notice this group of people here, I believe are martyrs. And I think you can include those who endured to the end too. Those who made it to the rapture. I think more people will be killed. You know, and really when you stop and think about it, okay, when the rapture takes place, everyone, all saved people that there's ever been are going to be resurrected, correct? I mean, starting all the way back in the beginning, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. So think about it. A vast majority of the people who participate in the rapture are going to be dead. Okay? A vast majority of them are the dead in Christ that rise first. It's going to be a pretty small percentage of people who actually are the ones who are alive and remain and get caught up in the clouds. It's a very small percentage. So, it, you know, it does appear that the emphasis or the focus seems many times to be more on the dead. That's because there's just so many more of them. We like to focus on those who are alive and remain because we're hoping we're going to be one of them. Okay? Isn't it interesting how we all like to focus on the things in the Bible that you know, we feel are about us? But you know what? Uh, it, Bible's not all about us. The Bible's actually about Christ. And so we, we need to kind of get over that. But the, so the pre-tribbers, they would, they would agree that these, this is talking about martyrs here, but then they do the same thing. When you get to chapter 7, that multitude that appears before the throne, that no man could number from all over the world, they say that's the martyrs right there. 
So it's like you have this massive group from all over the world that appears before the throne in chapter 7. They say that's the martyrs. Why? Because they came, these are they that came out of great tribulation. And then that same group laughs at us when we say revelation repeats itself. But then all of a sudden, we have another massive group of martyrs around the throne here in chapter 15. So let me, you know, the question that I have for these people is do they now agree that revelation repeats itself? Is this, you know, is this the same event that we see in chapter 7? Or is this another mass group of martyrs that takes place later? Because, you know, there's no doubt this group of martyrs are those who specifically did not take the mark of the beast. You know, and it's like, when do they think all this stuff's going to happen? So, you know, the, stuff like this creates a huge problem for them. And this is why you don't see them make too many timelines. You know, they'll all do their timelines of the, you know, Old Testament age, church age, rapture, tribulation. They'll all do that all day long. But they will not show you an outline of what they believe in the end times because there's nothing that makes sense. So the pre-trib is they would say everyone's spoken about here and in chapter 7 are martyrs. But that actually contradicts what we see in Matthew 24. So if you go to Matthew 24, in verse 21, it says, For then should be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Alright? So, pre-trivers, one thing they can't tell you is what shortens those days. The Bible says, for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Those days of great tribulation. What does that even mean in a pre-trib world? They can't, you know, if it's a mid-trib rapture for the Jews, you know, or is it a mid-trib rapture? Sam Gipp, he preached on that one time. I heard him preach. He said, I believe the rapture is going to come halfway through the tribulation. And then he said, and I also believe I won't be here for any of the tribulation. And then he went on to preach on a Jewish mid-tribulation rapture. Okay, that's uh, that is exactly what he taught. Go watch his sermon; on, it's on his YouTube page. I'm not just saying about him. Matthew 24, rightly divided. Okay, it's and and that's exactly what he said. He says it at the beginning of his message. And so, you know, is this a mid-trib rapture in Matthew 24? That's what he would say it is. Or is this a post-trib? pre-Armageddon rapture for the Jews. Because that's what a lot of these Ruckmanites are teaching now too. When you see the two on the field, one taking another left, two women grinding the field, one taking another left, they because they, they all say Matthew 24, that's talking about Armageddon when we see Jesus Christ returning in the clouds. They try to say that that's Armageddon and that's a another... So are there like two Jewish raptures now? So we've got church rapture, you got Jewish mid-trib rapture, and then you got like another Jewish mid-trib rapture. Do you all see why they can't do timelines of these things? Because it doesn't make any sense. Why? It doesn't fit. There is no system that they can come up with that fits the whole Bible. It falls apart everywhere, every way you spin it. And you know, and you go ask, and no, listen, there are no pre-tribbers that agree when it comes to how many raptures. Many pre-tribbers agree one rapture but they believe a pre-trib rapture. Many Ruckmanites believe two raptures. Some of them believe 
pre-trib rapture and a mid-trib rapture. Some believe in pre-trib rapture and a post-trib rapture. They can't even pre-tribbers can't even get on the same page. Why? Because it's just dead wrong. It, it's dead wrong. And so there's there's no matter what way you spin it, you can't get a pre-trib rapture. So this group that's in heaven is there is there clearly too in chapter 15 before God pours His wrath out. And so if they say those are only martyrs, then they are going to have to agree that Revelation repeats itself. They're going to have to make it the same group that's in Revelation 7. And if they if they admit that, they've created a problem for themselves. So look at verse 3. It says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. So let's take a, just a quick look at a couple things here too. So we're going to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Well, look at what it says in Revelation 7.9. In Revelation 7.9, it says, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, notice this, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb. Now, I personally think this is them singing the song of the Lamb right here. Is what I personally... That's what I think. But notice how it mentions the people that are standing there are from all nations. Okay, Look at what it says in chapter 15, verse 4, when they're singing. It says, Who shall not fear Thee, O Lord, and glorify Thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. So right here we see, you know, it's it's mentioning that all nations are going to come and worship. I think this is exactly what's taking place. You know, they're singing the song of the Lamb. Uh, you know, they're they're praising him, they're singing the song of Moses. What's the significance of the song of Moses? Now we're going to take time to read that whole thing. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, I believe that is the song of Moses. This was a song that they sang after they crossed the Red Sea. But let me read just the last part of, of the, song, uh, the song of Moses. Because there's a lot of prophecy in the song of Moses. A lot of it's been fulfilled, uh, but uh, some of it hasn't. But look what it says in verse 41. It says, If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me and I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. And Moses came and spake all the words of the song to the ears of the people, he and Hoshea, the son of Nun. So notice the last part of this song of Moses is talking about God getting vengeance. He's getting vengeance on what has been done to His people. So doesn't it make sense that right after we're raptured, we spend a little bit of time before the throne, we're just praising God, we're singing the song of the Lamb, praising Him, but then we also sing the song of Moses singing about how God is going to avenge us of our enemies. Now why would we do that? We would do that because many of us are going to be there as a result of being killed 
for our faith. And what's about to happen? Well, as we go through the rest of the chapter, we're going to see what's going to happen. We're going to see Jesus Christ Himself. He is going to go into the temple and He's going to start pouring out His wrath on the earth. And then ultimately, it's going to end with Jesus Christ Himself coming down to earth and executing judgment. So it's just, I mean, it makes perfect sense that we would sing the Song of the Lamb and the Song of Moses right after the rapture and right before He pours out His wrath. When we get up there, we start singing about how God's going to pour out His wrath because that is exactly what He's going to do as soon as we're raptured. And so, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, back to the last plagues thing. And I'm going to say more about this towards the end, but one of the things we remember too because is even before any of the trumpets or the vials, one of the things that you see right when the rapture happens is fire and brimstone fall from heaven. I think it's safe to say that's a plague. Okay, so there's you know there's bad stuff that's happened before these specific judgments start being poured out. So uh, look at verse uh, five. It says, and after that. I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. So, what does it mean when it refers to the last plagues in verse 1? What exactly is going on here? Because it's important. It's important we need to understand this because you know does this contradict the idea of these things happening simultaneously? It absolutely does not. Because here's what you've got to understand. When you're reading, don't just go and spend all your time focused on that one word last. It says last. It says last. It means there's got to be a first. That means it's got to be something that was before the trumpets. Whatever. Here's what, here's what people miss when they see that word last there. Okay? We need un- what you've got to understand about this chapter. Remember, John is writing down the things that he saw. Okay? He has several different visions in this. He'll kind of write down one vision and then later he kind of goes into another vision. Well, this particular vision that he's having right here is a continuation of chapter 14. Okay? You have to keep that in mind in order to understand this. Alright, so let me just kind of show you a few things. I'm not going to read all of chapter 14, but let me show you a few highlights to show you exactly why he is saying last plagues. Okay? And this is not a huge deal, but I'm wanting to show you this because we have got to get in the habit of looking at passages as a whole and not just zeroing in on one verse and one one word. That type of thing is messing up our theology so bad. And it's making us get things wrong. It's making us see things wrong. You know, you get up there, especially as a preacher, you go and you run your mouth, you know, for 10 minutes about one word and you miss the point because we're supposed to look at the passage as a whole. And we've got, we've got to stop doing that. He said in examples where pre-trippers do this, you know, we've not been appointed under wrath. And that, and they'll just, they'll just keep saying that. And what they do is they're saying, wrath equals the seven year tribulation. Without going anywhere in the Bible and proving that. I mean, they, they have, they go, they have no scriptural basis for that at all. Zero. 
And there's many things like that. I probably should have wrote several examples that where, where people will do that, they'll just take something wrong. They, they've attached a definition. Well, another, uh, here's, here's one example. You'll often hear pre-trivers when you preach against imminency, they'll start referring to verses on hope. For example, looking for that blessed hope. The Bible says looking for, that must mean it's imminent. Must mean it come at any moment. Okay, prove that from that passage. Prove imminency from that passage. Prove from the wording of that passage that looking for that blessed hope equals imminency. Prove to me from that passage, from that whole book of the Bible, that blessed hope equals rapture. Because actually when you study it, blessed hope is the changed body. The fact that we'll be like Christ. That is what our blessed hope is. That we will one day be like Christ. Yes, that happens at the rapture. But the blessed hope is not the rapture. The blessed hope is the body that's like Christ. So when you say looking for, if I were to say looking for the body that's like Christ, you know, well, we know that does, it's like, how do you get imminency out of that? But they attach a definition to it. So then what they'll do many times is then they'll, because blessed hope equals rapture in their mind, they'll pull any verse about hope and then they'll use that to prove imminency. They will go to, uh, you know, when you go, when you go to the Olivet Discourse, you know, um, no man knoweth the day or the hour. And they'll say, you know, that's, that's talking about the rapture, which it is. But then, They'll, they'll go to the verse too where it talks about um, what I say unto you, I say unto you all watch. Showing that that means imminency. But wait a minute. Actually, watch doesn't mean just watching for the rapture. It actually means all those things that he said were going to happen before the rapture. You know, that's what you see if you get, if you look at the whole passage. But they will, they'll skip and they'll say, watch, watch, blessed hope, blessed hope. Look at the whole passage. You have to do that. And so, notice in chapter 14, this is part of the same vision that we're seeing in chapter 15. It says in verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, uh, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Verse 8, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And a third angel followed them in verse 9 saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple. Alright? So notice in this vision, he's seeing one angel say one thing. He sees a second angel. He sees a third angel. He gets to the fourth angel and he says this fourth angel comes out of the temple crying with a loud voice. Verse 17, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. Verse, uh, and then when we get to chapter 15, it's a part of the same vision. And verse 5 says, And after that I looked and behold, the temple, the temple and the te- uh, of the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was open, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. The reason he says the last plagues in this thing is because in this vision, he sees you know, he, it, it's, he's seen a whole bunch of angels coming out. So in this one vision, just picture it this way, he's standing there and he's looking at the temple. 
First, he sees these three angels. He doesn't say where those ones come from. But then all of a sudden, he sees two angels come out of the temple. And then later in the vision, after all these judges have been pronounced, you know, Babylon's been talked about, all these things have happened, and even you know, the battle of the great day of God Almighty is mentioned when it talks about gathering the clusters of the vine and uh, putting them in the wine press of the fierceness of His wrath. That is also mentioned in there too which I think even happens later, but then he's just showing, hey, this is the last part of the vision. This is the last group of angels. They have the seven last plagues, so it's last in reference to something that comes after all these other things that he saw come out of the temple in chapter 14. See what I'm saying? So he's not saying, you know, this is... you know, it's When you see last there, it doesn't mean this is the last of all the events and all the things that happen in Revelation because Gog and Magog eventually is going to happen too a thousand years later. But understand, this is a specific vision that he's talking about. And so you can't just go and get all hung up on that and say, well, this is the last thing that has to happen. No, there's actually stuff that's going to happen after that too. It's just this is the last part of this vision. Okay? And the last, this is the last thing that's coming out. So that's what you've got to get from this passage. When you're thinking about the language that it's using, when you're thinking about what's going on, you've got to understand this is picking up where chapter 14 left off. This is the same vision where, you know, he had other visions where he saw a beast coming out of the sea. This particular vision is a different one where he's seeing angels coming everywhere, coming from everywhere. He's got angels coming out of the temple. So, Keep all so keep all that in mind, and so uh, in verse seven it says, "And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So after this temple gets cleared out of all these angels." All of a sudden, the glory of God fills the temple. And when the glory of God fills the temple, nobody else is usually in the temple. All right. Remember in First Kings chapter eight, uh, it says in verse ten it says, and it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So you kind of see <clears throat> something similar going on in heaven. So what is happening here when Jesus is in the temple and what happens when He comes out? Okay, So this is what we've got to keep in mind too. This is important that you get this too for when we go into the next chapters. So in this vision, you've got all these angels coming basically pronouncing all these judgments. You have these seven angels that come out of the temple and they have these seven vials and in them are filled up the wrath of God. The beast uh, gave... These uh, the seven angels, the golden vials full of the wrath of God. All of a sudden now, the temple of God, it's filled with the glory of God. Why? I believe because God is now in the temple and He is about to pour out His wrath is, is what we see. So, notice at the end of chapter 15, it ends with the temple being filled with the smoke. It, in, it ends <clears throat> with the temple being filled with the glory of God. So, here's... The question. So now, what happens? What is the significance of this? Well, let me just hit a few highlights 
to help you understand what's about to come in the next chapter. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your way and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. So notice you hear this from out of the temple. And what's about to happen is from the temple, I believe, is where you know, wrath is going to be poured out, where judgment is going to be executed from. And so I believe this is the voice of God ordering the angels to pour out the judgment. In verse 17 of chapter 16, it says, "...and the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake." such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, and every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So notice how it is God that's pouring out His wrath on the earth during this time. This is God that's doing all these things. This is not like what we saw with the seals, where all of these occurrences are natural things. These are not God doing these things. Okay, Remember, it was Jesus Christ, the Lamb. He's the one that's removing the seals and He's revealing what's going on on the earth. But there's nothing that says He is the one doing these things and responsible for these things. But here, on the, when it comes to these vials, this is God pouring out the wrath. This is God doing it Himself. He's bringing these things on the earth and He's doing all of it from the temple. And interestingly enough, too, people are blaspheming God for what's going on. They, are, they realize who's coming after them, what's being done to them, and they're not repenting of these things. You know, They're not calling out for salvation. They are blaspheming Him. And I believe it's, I believe it's because a vast, vast majority of these people too are reprobate at this point. I mean, they've got the mark of the beast. They have rejected. I mean, the Gospel's gone into the whole world. I mean, the God's people did great exploits before they were raptured out. They get raptured out. You know, at that time, Jesus returns in the clouds. Every eye sees Him. And yet, they're not getting saved. Why? They're under the strong delusion at this point. And I, I think it's going to be very... I said I, I do think people will get saved during the wrath of God period. I think it's, I think it's very likely. But I don't think it's going to be a, a massive amount of people. So, anyway, so basically... At the end of chapter 16, this concludes God's judgment that He executes from heaven. But then the next judgment, it's going to involve Him coming down to earth. So after He gets done pouring out these vials, then what's going to happen? He's going to be coming on that white, on that white horse. Right? And that's when He's going to come and He is going to smite the nations. And so chapter and so chapter 12 through 17 it's basically been a look at everything from heaven. Okay? But then when we get into the, these next chapters basically what we start seeing are some of the same things 
but from earth's viewpoint. Okay? Because remember, chapter 12, that's that vision of the woman, right? Chapter 13, it's a vision of these beasts. Okay? We know those things are not literal. That, you know, there's not going to be these literal beasts with, you know, seven heads and ten horns and all that kind of stuff. That is a picture of a one world government. Okay? These are kind of heavenly visions that are going on that he's seeing from heaven. Chapter 14 and 15, it's visions of all these angels kind of coming out of the temple, pouring out different judgments. The wrath of God is poured out. We see the destruction of Babylon mentioned. We see the rapture that's mentioned. And we even see uh, the, the final battle that's mentioned in those chapters. So then when we get to chapter uh, 17, uh, notice what it says in verse 1. Alright? Chapter 17, verse 1, it says, And there came out, uh, came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked to me saying, Come, uh, come on, saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So once again, here in chapter 17, we're now getting a closer look at the destruction of Babylon, but we're getting it once again from a heavenly perspective. He's caught away in the spirit here. And he's seeing what's clearly visions that represent certain things. But then when we get to chapters 18 and 19, notice in chapter 18, verse 1, and after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power and the earth was lightened with His glory. And then in chapter 18, we kind of see more about the destruction of Babylon, but I think we're seeing it from an earthly perspective. Okay? And then chapter 19, I think we see... So, think about this. So, chapter 15, it ends with Jesus going into the temple with the vials, Right? Chapter 16, it's the vials are being poured out. So Jesus is in the temple, right? So let's try to get a timeline in our head here. So we're in the wrath of God period. Jesus is pouring out the vials from the temple. In chapter 17, we have another vision of the destruction of Babylon. So where is Jesus during the destruction of Babylon? He is in the temple because that is a part of God pouring out His wrath. What's going on? So chapter 18, we see more about the destruction of Babylon. We see it from an earthly view. So where is Jesus still? Jesus is still in the temple, right? So then when we get to chapter 19, now you know what we're seeing? Now we're seeing what happens when Jesus leaves the temple. After Jesus exits the temple, He comes to earth on the white horse and that is when he goes and he fights that great battle. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Look, it says in verse 11 of chapter 19, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. 
So right there, I believe what you see taking place there in chapter 19, Jesus is now done in the temple and He leaves. So this is how I personally believe it's all going to play out. Okay, Here's a timeline that I think makes sense with all of chapter or all, all of the book of Revelation. So basically, Jesus Christ, He comes at the rapture, right? And every eye sees Him. He, we are caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I believe when we, we meet Him in the air, but then we are all going to appear before the throne in heaven. When we get before the throne in heaven, we're going to spend a little bit of time singing and praising God during that time. That's going to be an exciting time. After we get done singing and praising God for a little bit, we are going to see Jesus Christ all of a sudden kind of go and He's going to leave for a little bit and He is going to go into the temple that's in heaven. While He is in that temple that's in heaven, He is going to begin to pour His wrath out on this earth. And while He's pouring His wrath out on the earth, people are blaspheming Him. Why? Remember what they said in chapter 6? Hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb? Why are they saying that? Because when He came in the clouds, every eye saw Him. It wasn't a secret rapture. Okay? And so when He's pouring out these vials of wrath, everyone knows who's doing it. Okay? thing is, they're not repenting. Why? They've received a strong delusion. They're reprobate. God's not going to let them this passage. So while so we're going to sing before the throne around. He's going to go into the temple. He's going to pour His wrath out. When He's done pouring His wrath out in that temple, then you know what I think He's going to do? I think He's going to come out. He's going to mount a horse. I think we're going to mount a horse. And then we're coming to earth. And then He's going to go and He's going to smite the nations. He's going to judge the nations. And then He is going to rule on this earth and we're going to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years. So that's what you're seeing here. And you need to understand this too. So once again, when it comes to the whole idea of Revelation kind of being a continuous story from 1-11, through 11, that's true. When it comes to repeating itself in chapter 12-22, through 22, that's true. But just understand, each chapter is not necessarily, not necessarily chronological. There's a lot of stuff that's repeated in there. It's basically just showing visions, giving greater detail of these of these main events. So it does kind of jump around a little bit. So the key the key to understanding the second half of the book of Revelation is just understanding which vision you're seeing and then just paying attention to what he talks about in that vision. That that's key to getting it. So chapter 15, it is a part of the same vision of chapter 14. You see we see in here how God is actively involved in the pouring out of the judgment that goes on during this time. This is the time of His wrath. This is it. His wrath begins in heaven, but I believe it ends when He comes down to earth. And folks, when you see how, when you see how clear these things are, I mean, it, once again, you know, here we are in chapter 15. I mean, there's, there's literally no room for a pre-trib rapture. There's no doubt that that can be wrong. You know, I was thinking about this today. You know, in the 70s, all right, I wasn't around in the 70s and early 80s, but did you know that in like the 70s and early 80s, there were some good preachers that I would consider great men of God. I think most people consider great men of God. Do you know there, there were men like that that were not King James only? They weren't. Why? Because 
Unfortunately, other Bibles, other versions crept in. It was something that crept into the independent Baptist movement. And I mean, even guys like Jack Hiles was not always super strong KJV only. Guys like John R. Rice, he used other versions of the Bible. That, I mean, he he referenced them in his book. Okay, so were these just wicked, evil men? No, but understand this was something that crept in, and then thankfully, all of a sudden, people woke up and said, "Wait a minute, we've got a problem here." And you know what? The good guys got it right. The good guys said, hey, you know, we dropped the ball somewhere here. You know what? There has to be a perfect Word of God. And you know what? They figured out, you know, we've had it for almost 400 years in the King James Bible. Now, I do not think I'm being harsh or exaggerating when I say there's no such thing as a good church that's not King James only today. I, I wouldn't give you two cents for any preacher that's not King James only today. So what's the difference? What's the difference between the 70s and now? I'll tell you what the difference is now. The Word's gotten out. We are accountable for it. Remember that verse next. You know, at the time of this ignorance, talking about idolatry, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. It had been revealed to the world that idolatry was false, and God now has a higher expectation today than he did before. I and so I believe today it's out. The King James Bible is the Word of God. I do not believe there is such a thing as a good church or a good pastor that is not King James only. And you know what? I think it's only a matter of time and we'll be able to say the same thing when it comes to the pre trib rapture. I I believe that there are still some good pre trib preachers out there today. I believe I believe that. However, I think probably 20 years from now, we'll be able to, you'll be able to say, you know what? I wouldn't give you two cents for a pre-trib church. I believe it's only a matter of time, and we will have to say being pre-trib is a deal breaker. You know why? Because God is going to hold people accountable. The word is out. Dispensationalism—it's another thing. Just like false Bibles, it crept in. Dispensationally, it crept in to the church. It crept in to the independent Baptist movement. It was innocent at first, but you know what? Thankfully, God started waking some people up and saying, hey, you know what? This is bad. This is really bad, and I believe there is an awakening on this, and I believe that it's only a matter of time, and we'll be able to say, you know what? That church is pre-trib. You should not go to it. Just like that guy uses an NIV, you shouldn't go to his church. And they'll be able to say, well, well, you know, all these greats of the past, they, they didn't know any better. Okay? The conventions, the, all, I mean, all the Bible colleges, it's, you know, and the truth is, there were probably, there were probably strong King James only guys in the 60s and 70s and all that. But the thing is, they couldn't afford the national radio programs. They couldn't afford to put out the newspapers. They couldn't afford to get books published and mass produced. They were just local guys in their local churches do it, preaching what they were supposed to preach and we'll never know who they were. But now, thank God, because of things like the internet, we're not able to be suppressed by those things anymore. You know, I'll never get asked to speak at the Revival Fires Conference. 
You know, I won't get asked to put my sermon in their paper, but guess what? One of my YouTube sermons gets more attention than his paper. And that is that is just a fact, all right? And I'm not even that popular. And my my sermons I put on YouTube get more time and attention than a revival fire sermon. Nobody reads them. There's there's no doubt that nobody reads them. So I do. I am I am confident that it's it's only a matter of time. I think I think probably less than a decade away, and the there will, there will always be pre-trib churches, but they will be in the same category as the NIV churches. Those churches aren't going away either. They're not going away, but there will be. Uh, you know, I believe there's going to be more churches like ours, and we'll be able to. Uh, spot these people for what they are. God's going to hold these people accountable. And the guys who have been challenged and have rejected, they're losing their ministries. They're, I mean, they're they're losing their influence. They are they're falling apart, literally. And so, uh, just some words of encouragement there on that. But let's go ahead and close on with the word of prayer. So, dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the clear teaching that it gives. And dear God, I pray help us to. Learn to uh, rightly divide the Scriptures. Help us to uh, read these passages the way You intended them to be read and to interpret them the way that You intended us to interpret them. pray You'll help us to make sure we get these things right and not get all stuck in a position to where we're not able to see the truth anymore. pray You'll help us as we try to uh, continue uh, studying the rest of this book. pray You'll help us to make sure we get these things right and learn the things You want us to learn from them. In Your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead.